We're starting a new series today called Life is Better Now. It's just better now. You know, um, I was thinking this last week of stories that my dad told growing up. My dad grew up as a poor preacher's kid in Minnesota. Uh, he was born in the Depression era. And he told us all sorts of stories. You know, he told us about how growing up when they were real little kids that the house, if it was warm in the middle of winter, would be 50 degrees. And so as all of the six kids would get up in the morning, they would all rush to the wood stove upstairs. And uh, that sometimes they'd usually turn their backs and bend down to put their pants on, and sometimes they actually burn their butts by getting too close to the stove. And, and then he told us stories about, you know, the fact that Minnesota, you know, it gets 20, blows, 20 below in the winter sometimes, and they had an outhouse, and he just talked about how gracious and fun that was to go to the uh, outhouse in 20 below weather. And uh, there were lots of things I could say, but I won't say any further about that. He told me about the first time they had running water in their house. Now, for some of us, that's hard to imagine, but, you know, it's just one generation older than me, and I guess I'm old to some of you. Um, you know, was, for some of them, was the first time they got running water in their house. Uh, they were so poor for a while that uh, when they would go to school, uh, they would have a sandwich, but they had nothing to put on the sandwich, so they would just smear it with bacon grease, and that was their sandwich. Uh, going to school, and it's amazing that they didn't all die of heart attacks by age 28 in that era. I remember the stories of World War II rationing, rationing of gas and rationing of sugar, and the stories that my dad would tell of when they were running low on sugar and it was a birthday for somebody, sometimes the, the store owner would kind of break the rules a little bit and give them a little extra sugar for a birthday. But the most famous story in the Ottoman household that will get passed on probably for generations is the story of Halloween. You see, my dad grew up in a little town called Sargent, Minnesota, just about 15 miles out of the spam capital of the world, Austin, Minnesota. It was a metropolis of about 50 people, if you counted all the dogs and the, the cows in the backyard and everything like that. And they still had outhouses. Well, it was tradition in Sargent, Minnesota, when he was growing up, that on Halloween, some of the older boys in the community would go and tip the outhouses. So my dad and his older brother got an idea one year that the night before Halloween, they went around to all the outhouses and moved them just a hair off center. So when the boys showed up the next night, instead of firm ground to put their feet on to tip the outhouse, they found the hole. Life is better now except for practical jokes. You just can't get practical jokes that good anymore. <laughs> but on the whole, the creature comforts are better today, aren't they? But a lot of times in our faith, we ask the question, wouldn't it be better if Jesus were here? Wouldn't it be better if Jesus walked in that door he'd be a whole lot more interesting than I am, he'd come up here, tell better stories than I would, and he would heal people, and we'd get to see them, and we'd get to talk with them and, and, and understand their experience. And, and when he said something we didn't understand, we'd get to ask him questions, and he'd answer, just like you hear the sound of my voice now. Wouldn't it be so much better if Jesus were here now? Would it be better? Jesus answers that question for us in his own way in John 16:7. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. 
serious theme we're on is better now, and today's message is about better that Jesus is gone. Now, really, honestly, isn't that kind of hard to, hard to swallow? I mean, all the time I go through my mind, I read these biblical stories, and I go, wouldn't it have been cool to be there to ask this leper, what was it like to get healed? Wouldn't it have been cool to be able to ask the disciples what it was like to get sent out on their first mission trip and how God used them and how they understood to allow God to use them on that? I mean, wouldn't it have been cool to be there to, to see Jesus, to see the original disciples, to talk to Jesus, to talk to the people who were directly impacted by his ministry? But Jesus says it is for our good that he goes away. And he says this in Luke eleven thirteen. he says, about the same thing. He says, if then, though you are evil, talking to us, if we are evil, sinful people, and we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to you who ask? We are imperfect, and we know how to give good gifts. Our kids like the gifts we got. We probably like the gifts we got when we were growing up for birthdays. The perfect God who gives the perfect gift, says the best gift he could possibly ever give us is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he says in the first verse that it's better that he go away because unless he goes away, he's not able to send the Spirit to us. An amazing statement, an amazing claim by Jesus. You know, if you're here today and you are still kind of not sure about this whole Jesus thing, whether you're supposed to follow him, this is the reason we constantly say, many of you have been here for a while, we constantly say, it's not about you figuring out the religion of the rule book. It's about you experiencing the presence of God that's going to bring you to a faith or not to a faith. And if you're here today and you've been following Christ for many years, really this whole theme of following and understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, it's Jesus' active presence with us today, here, now, is the center point of what we have to do to figure out how to walk our Christian life. It's so important that Jesus on his last night with his disciples before he was crucified, which actually forms the bulk of Jesus' teaching as recorded in the Gospel of John, Jesus spends more time in his last words to his disciples talking about the Holy Spirit and who the Holy Spirit will be to him than any other single topic. This is really an important topic. If we look at it even further, think about this. The disciples up until the time of Jesus' crucifixion are thinking this is the Messiah. And to them, the Messiah means he's going to lead them to overthrow the Roman rule. And he's going to reestablish the greatness of the Jewish nation and the faith in the one God by political force. And then he dies. What a letdown. Then he comes back to life. Now, can you imagine what the disciples are thinking when he comes back to life? They're thinking, man, I'm ready to go. This guy not only conquers and heals all sorts of diseases, casts out demons, performs miracles, is the most amazing teacher, but this guy even defeats death. How can we lose now? Come on, let's get out of swords. Let's do what we have to do to, 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 to get this freedom we want to get. But what does Jesus say to him? In Acts 1, it's recorded in verses 4 through 6 that Jesus says, No, I want you to wait. These guys are raring to go 
And Jesus says, wait, it is so important, this thing called the Holy Spirit is so important of you experiencing the presence of God, being filled, baptized, whatever word you want to use as the Bible uses all those words, with the Holy Spirit, that you should not do anything. I'm alive. I'm here with you. Death is defeated. Your sins are forgiven. But you should not do anything until you get this gift. This is an important thing. This is central to who we are as Christians and how we walk our life. Now, the reason we're doing the series now is Partially because I don't normally always pay attention to the church calendar, but we're in the time of the church liturgical calendar between Easter and the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost is the the day that the church for centuries has celebrated the giving of the Holy Spirit, as we're talking about. And so we're just going to be talking about this for the next few weeks um, and what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. Because in Romans 8.14 it says this, those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So not only is this an important issue in Jesus' teaching, it's a central theme you will see all throughout Paul and Peter and all the other books written in the Bible. And not only, it's, it, it's this idea that, it's, this idea that it's, it's our experience of the Holy Spirit that teaches us to walk this Christian life. But so many of us, I still fall into this, we fall back into the idea that if we can just understand the principles, the timeless truths of the Bible, then we can live this Christian walk well. Well, let me, let me share it this way. In junior high and high school, I was an avid tennis player. I had hopes and dreams as a young kid of hoping to play college. But I unfortunately lived in a really small town where it was too long a distance to drive to the nearest decent tennis coach. And even if I could afford the time and the money to drive there, I couldn't afford the money for the lessons. So my alternative to that was I subscribed to Tennis Magazine. And I watched every Bjorn Borg match I could ever watch on TV, which was not a lot back then, guys. We didn't have cable. We didn't have all the sports channels. It was just the major networks. So you got to watch about five or six tennis matches a year is all. But I did everything I could. I read everything I could in Tennis Magazine. And it's a little bit like a lot of us approach our faith. We read the Bible trying to figure everything out, figure out all the fundamentals, figure out all the, all the, all the ways we're supposed to swing in life and how we're supposed to walk and what we're supposed to do. And, and Tennis Magazine actually had one up on the Bible. It was better than the picture Bible even because they had motion sequences of the great coaches and the great players on how they would serve I learned to do an Australian twist serve, and I got a great story on that one someday. It was the most satisfying victory I ever had. I won't tell it here. Um, but you could, I mean, you, you, had, you had motion graphics of your footwork, everything. I loved tennis. I worked as hard as I could. During the summers, when I, didn't, when I wasn't working on the farm, I played 10 hours a day, literally. I and Meade Carlson were about the only two people in Keister, Minnesota that actually played tennis. And when I went to work on the farm, I'd work 10 hours a day, and if I, wasn't, if I didn't have a softball game that night, I'd come home and I'd play two to three hours of, of tennis until it got dark because it was a tennis court, but we were too poor to have lights, so you could only play until darkness. I worked hard. I worked harder than most everybody I know that played 
college tennis. But there was one gal that I grew up with who, who and I knew from a distance from some camps and stuff we were at, whose dad was a coach, and she was extremely well coached. She won a couple state championships in Minnesota, and then she went on and played in college. It was extremely well coached. I got to play her in college. This guy who worked 10 hours a day, reading everything he could, trying to get the principles. And you know what? She kicked my butt. I mean, it wasn't even a match. You see, I could read all day long the principles and the tactics and try to figure them out, but nothing ever replaces a personal coach who can show us how this works in real life. And that's really what this whole thing of the Spirit is. And that's what this whole thing of the way we approach the Bible. Yes, the Bible is principles. It's got all sorts of things. But we have to approach the Bible as not principles, but as meeting with the Spirit of God who inspired it. Meeting with this coach. And this is what we're really talking about. God is saying to us in this whole thing of sending the Holy Spirit, He wants to send us this life coach who's going to live with us to help us figure out. Because, you know, when we read the Bible, come on, let's get honest. There's things that don't make sense. There's things that seem like they contradict each other. But it's a little bit like me playing tennis. The tennis magazine said, this is how I should approach that and do it. And when I played this gal who had great coaching, she said, well, yeah, but it's only you approach it during this time or when they're doing this. this is only. I mean, there's things that you just can't get from a book that you can get from a, a coach who's with you. And that's who the Holy Spirit is to us. We can either choose religion or we can choose relationship. And here's the deal. Knowing the presence of the Spirit is very possible. Even in the Old Testament, David says this. He says, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, what's David saying there? Now, there's a little bit of difference theologically. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on people but not reside with them. And it would then depart. And David here is lamenting the fact that he can sense the difference in peace. He can sense the difference in wisdom and courage and everything else that he needs for life. He can sense the difference when the Holy Spirit is on him and when it's not. And he's pleading with God saying, don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Jesus says he can, we can sense the Holy Spirit. In Luke 8:46, there's this story of, of this woman who's been sick for 20 years and none of the doctors can heal her. And, and Jesus is walking through this big crowd and there's people touching him all over. I mean, it's, he's, he's just cutting his way through the crowd. And this woman comes up behind him saying, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And she touches him while 20 other people are touching him in the crowd. She touches him from behind. And Jesus stops and turns around and says to his disciples, who touched me? And the disciples look like him. Look like, look at, blah, blah, blah. Pull that word out. They look at Jesus and say, you know, what, what, I mean, are you insane? I mean, you've been touched by 100 people in the last 20 steps. What do you mean? And Jesus says this, I felt power go out from me. He could sense the movement of the Holy Spirit in him and through him. Acts 16, 7 says that Paul could sense the Holy Spirit preventing him from going into a place. In 2023, it says he could sense the Spirit warning him about some certain circumstances. You see, this whole thing of the Christian life, we would like to package it up in a box, but learning to be led by the Spirit is more caught than taught. 
It's more of practicing the presence of God. In fact, for those of you who recognize that term, one of the greatest Christian classics of all time, written by Brother Lawrence, is called Practicing the Presence of God. It's been a Christian classic for over 500 years because it's a journal of this guy's experiences of learning to follow the Spirit of God's leading in his life. And there's just lessons in there for us in that book. Practicing his presence. The thing that also makes it interesting for us is that the Spirit of God is not predictable. We can't say, we know he's going to do this now in this way. Jesus illustrates that for us when he talks to this Pharisee who comes to him named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. All the Pharisees are against Jesus, except Nicodemus is starting to kind of wonder if this Jesus guy is really who he says he is. Not wondering enough to say it publicly, so he comes to him at night and asks him some questions. And Jesus responds to him in John 3 with this. He says, Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, I know today with all the weather radars and all the studies, we understand a little bit more about the wind. We understand a little bit more about where it comes from, how it, how it happens, when it's going to be fast or when it's going to be a slow or, or whatever. But you've you got to put yourself back in that day. They had no clue where the wind came from. They couldn't predict anything. And Jesus is using a metaphor of their day saying, Even though you can't predict where it comes from, even though it's not controllable, you can still sense the wind, can't you? And you can also sense the Spirit's movements. And this life for us following Christ is a little bit like being fishermen or sailors who know how to catch the wind, know how to go with the wind. That's really what all of this Christian journey is about. That's the reason Jesus makes such a big deal of it. In this series, as a whole, I want to ask you to do a couple things. I want to ask you, as you read your Bible, I want you to take note, special note, of every place where the Holy Spirit is mentioned or where Spirit with a capital S is mentioned in your Bible. I want you to just think about What's happening in those settings? In fact, if it's a story involving people, what I, want you to, what I want to invite you to do is I want you to try to put yourself the best you can in, through your imagination in that person's shoes and think, what would they be experiencing? Just as a way of trying to understand, even from the Bible, about the moving of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you, if you're interested, to go pick up the little paperback. It's not a real long one called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence and read that. But there are two things I want to ask for a response today, and we're going to get down by looking at a couple more scriptures here. The first is based out of Acts 14 through 16, uh, eight, chapter 8, 14 through 16. And it says this, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter... And John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, 
surrounding this passage, if you've been around Christian circles for a long time or read any kind of read a whole lot of theology, you realize that there's a whole lot of theological debate around this passage of when the Holy Spirit comes, how the Holy Spirit comes, what does it look like, what should we expect. Uh, Does it come when we accept Christ or does it not? This one seems to indicate that some people accepted Christ, were even baptized in his name, and didn't receive the Holy Spirit. And it's so easy for us when we look at these things as Christians to fall back in this tennis magazine rules types of thing and, and try to figure it out. What really happens here? But so often in good theological debates we lose track of what's really important, unfortunately. We try to categorize everything so well that we forget what really is important. And what's really important here is they had not experienced the Spirit of God. They'd even been baptized into Jesus' name and and were committed to following him for some time and had not experienced the Spirit of God in a way that they understood it and were walking in it. So let me ask you, are you here today? Have you been a Christian maybe even for a long time, dedicated your life to Christian? Maybe you grew up in church, but it's always been this kind of tennis magazine rule book and you've never experienced God's spirit or you're not sure you have. Now, it's not like, you know, it's a little bit like marriage. It's not like, uh, it's not like I always feel the ooey-gooey's for my wife and all this kind of stuff, and it's not like I'm always on a high, but I can still be with her and I can still be in her presence even when I don't feel those things. So it's, it's not like we always have to have this high sense in life. But, but have you experienced him? Do you know him? Do you know his presence? Do you understand what it's like to be led by him? If you haven't, then one of the responses today I want to ask of you is I want you to ask God to give you that. And I want to ask you to find somebody who has experienced that to pray for you. Not because that person is any better than you, because they're not. But just as this text even says, they hadn't experienced it, and people who had, in this case, the apostles were sent to him for some reason which I don't fully understand, the Bible uses people who have experienced something sometimes to pray for other people to impart what they've experienced. And again, the people who are praying are not any better than the people who are receiving. It's just God chooses to use people to do His work through. So I want to encourage you to ask somebody to pray for you as well. Better gone. That was kind of the theme for today's message. It's better that Jesus is gone. And a lot of times we think of that only in terms of, well, yeah, I guess that makes sense because if Jesus is here in a physical body, he could only be here today and he couldn't be at all the other churches and he couldn't be with me wherever I'm at. And so having the Spirit comes means he can be with me everywhere. Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. But I think there's an even greater reason why it's better that Jesus goes away and the Spirit comes. And in a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion as part of this because I think communion and, and, and the work of the Holy Spirit integrally ties together everything we're talking about today. And let me illustrate it this way through this, through this scripture in Matthew 27, verse 45. The context here is Jesus is on the cross. 
And in verse 45, it says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And if you say it really fast, everybody believes you can pronounce it and we're, we're good to go. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the depth of Jesus' experience on the cross, at the time when he received the full penalty of all of our sin, all of the world's sin on him, the penalty of sin, the greatest penalty of sin is separation from God, this feeling of forsakenness. Jesus took it all. goes on to say, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, oh, he's calling Elijah. Makes sense. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And then listen to this. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, and this passage of the gospel does not say what he cried, but in John it says what he cried at this moment was, it is finished. And the word that is translated as finished there means more than what finished means for us in English. It means more of a, Jesus is saying, it's fully complete. I have fully, perfectly completed taking all of the sin. I've completed absolutely, perfectly everything I was called to do. It is finished. And then he gives up his spirit. And at the same time, what happens is the curtain of the Jewish temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus completes his work, his work and the temple curtain is torn in two. What's the significance of that? Now, you've got to understand, this is a picture of the uh, artist's rendering of the temple. It's considered one of the seven great wonders of the world. I mean, this is an amazing place. I mean, look at those little, those little doors besides the big door going into the main gate there. Those are huge doors. This is a big, amazing place. And this curtain separated what was called just inside the bigger building back there was called the holy, pla- the, the holy place. And behind that, the curtain separated people from the, what was called the holy of holies. The holy place is where people would go in on a daily basis and they would worship God and they'd offer incense and they'd offer sacrifices for God's forgiveness. Only once a year did the really most spiritual dude of Israel get to go past that curtain into the Holy of Holies because God in the Old Testament said, in that place, I will dwell in such presence and power and holiness that no one can go there except one a year. And that person has to go there after having purified themselves. It's the place where God's presence was most thick, most powerful, most known. Now think about this. From there to there is oh probably about 60 feet, maybe give or take a little bit. This curtain was no ordinary curtain. This curtain was not like your curtains in your house. It was not like your bath shower curtain. This curtain was 60 feet wide, 30 feet high, 4 inches thick. It took 300 people to lift this puppy. This was well put together. And it split from top to bottom, completely, completely apart. In fact, this event is actually not just recorded in the Bible. It's also referred to by Josephus, a first century historian born in 37 AD. It's referred to by, uh, what's his name, Tacitus, a Roman senator who was also a historian born around the 50s. 
and it was referred to even in the Jewish Talmud writings that some sort of an event of this nature happened about the time Christ was crucified. This is not just something the Bible says. It's not just something made up. This curtain was torn in two. Now, why is that? We're going to celebrate communion. A lot of times we look at communion and we say, oh, this is just a a way we remember what Jesus did. We remember that Jesus died on the cross. We remember he came through the bread symbolizing his body. We remember he came as a person to show us a human example of how to live. And then he died for us. And we look at communion and we say, yes, so now we've got an example. That's great. Yes, we've been forgiven. And that's true. Yes, he took, stri- he took stripes for us on his body to offer healing for us. But the greatest thing of this whole act of when it was finished was the fact that this holy place of God was severed and God comes to be with us. Think about it for a second. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when I, pr- when I spoke. And, I, and for those of you who weren't here, I'll just kind of briefly go through this. We were talking then about how God views us in sin and what does that look like when we're forgiven. And we talked about the fact that we talked to kind of just created an imaginary place here and we said God sees us here. His blood forgives us. It not only forgives us of the sin we repent for, but when we come and ask Him to be the leader of our life and repent of our sin, He forgives us for the sin that we don't even know that we do. And we used a couple terms that the Bible uses and explained them, saying He declares us righteous, not because we are good and in right standing and able to be in right standing with Him on our own, but because He gives us Jesus' righteousness and therefore declares us completely clean. We use the biblical term called justified, the fact that He views us when we have accepted His forgiveness as though we had never sinned. He views us as He originally created us to be beautiful, not just good, very good, created in His image for a wonderful purpose. He doesn't view us like we still are over here because the reality is all of us are still over here even after we've accepted Christ. We're still trying to walk out of the muck. We're still trying to figure out how not to sin. He views us that way and He invites us to be viewed that way. Here's the beautiful part. This whole process we talked about moving from here to how Jesus views us, the Bible talks about it using the word sanctification. It means taking steps to free ourselves of our sin, to put on His good things for us and let go of the things that undermine our life and cause us to be captive to sin. When His work was finished, no longer was the temple the most holy place we become the most holy place. There's no longer any need for His Spirit to dwell in the Holy of Holies in a building somewhere because He has forgiven us and He wants to come and dwell each one of us. We're not left alone to ourselves to figure out how to make these steps. It's now we're here, He sees us there, and it's a Spirit filling us that just pulls us, that leads us, that draws us to Him. That's the beauty of communion. It's not just that we're forgiven. It's not just that healing can be ours, whatever kind of healing it is. 
It's not just that we have this wonderful example of who Jesus is to look in a book and read about and see motion pictures in our minds about how to do it. It's that the work being finished gives us access to be filled by the very presence of God and learn to live in that more and more each day.